You're listening to Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Here, we'll chat about all things marriage, motherhood, and modern home economics in all honesty. I'm your host, Maurice Young. This episode is sponsored by Dram Apothecary, award-winning CBD sparkling water, CBD drops, and bitters. I'm always on the lookout for brands that value honesty as much as this audience does, and I was instantly impressed by Dram from the moment I cracked open my first can of citrus and blossoms. Dram is a woman-owned, Colorado-based business that champions sustainability, and Dram products never have synthetic flavorings. They're just products made with real plants by real humans. And you can snag your first order for 20% off when you use code YHM in all caps at checkout. Visit DramApothecary.com or tap the link in the show notes. And now, on to the show. Thank you so much, April, for being a guest on Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, and it's an honor to be here. Yay. Okay, so let's start with this. Who is April? So April actually has a mission statement, believe it or not. Love it. Um, Yes. So April Deshaun Barker's God-given mission is to proclaim God's word through psalm, pen, preaching, prophecy, and prayer, and to create an atmosphere of godliness wherever I go. Wow. That was the most prepared answer I've ever received to that question because I I start every podcast episode off by asking my guests that question. Um, So now I'm curious, what inspired you to craft this mission statement for yourself? Um, A couple of things. Um, I've always been uh, a verbal person. I majored in communications and Mm. um, throughout my process of uh, becoming a woman, which is lifelong, I think, different stages, different levels, I realized very quickly that I like to assist and to help and to serve, and I have a lot of ideas. And so there was a time when I felt the Lord's calling to uh, get into his identity beyond motherhood, wifehood, um, my career, my gifts, and my talents, and understand why he created me. And so that's how I came about the mission statement. Wow. Did you play around with other statements or was this the one that immediately felt like, yes, this is exactly what I'm setting out to do. And you didn't really have to experiment with any other mission statements. Uh, It was really a download and I'm a writer. So um, I have done mission statements before. So I think it was kind of organic. However, I will say that I have edited it um, by adding uh, some of those uh, words because it was shorter. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you brought up that at one point in time, you felt that you needed to more fully discover your identity mm-hmm. within God. Yeah. What sparked that interest in you and, and how did you navigate that quest? Well, I felt the call to ministry. Um, as it's uh, identified, you know, within churches. And Mm -hmm. I felt that call. I think we all minister in some shape, form, or fashion. We're all serving somebody at some point in time. And, but the actual official call to actually God setting me apart and saying, you will serve in my kingdom for this specific cause. And um, about 2000, and how old was my child? (laughs) All the years now are by how old the children who was born. So I want to say maybe 2006. 2006. And so, um, yeah, about that time. 
about that time. So how did you navigate the quest then to go deeper into exploring that identity? By being formal. So church had a process, you meet with the assistant pastor, you tell them what you felt like God was speaking to you. And then they, you know, either affirmed or said, pray about it, I guess. (laughs) And so I had a Mm -hmm. swift affirmation. And I, I think I've always been like that. Like people could see the gifts in me and on me before I could acknowledge them and accept them. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if that's like something that we all experience in certain areas, but that has been a trend in my life. And so surely he was just like, oh, yes, definitely you called, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that was awesome. What audience did you feel called to serve? So um, really, honestly, my first call was in prayer. And that Mm -hmm. happened even before that. I've always felt I didn't even know it was called intercession. I had no formality. I just knew that I wanted to pray for people from the time that I became a believer. I felt this call to just really just talk to God. And um, so I did that first. And so within that church, there was a prayer ministries and then there was a ministerial staff. And I felt called to be on the ministerial staff. And they had a certain structure where hey, if you're called to minister, you're called to serve. And the first place, can you imagine uh, that uh, rookie ministers would serve would be, of course, the most needed area, and that's children's ministry. So that's pretty much where I went first (laughs) in that church setting. Did you already notice before serving in this capacity that you were drawn to children, that you were someone who worked well with children? Um, I wouldn't say so. So mm-hmm. I was always kind to children and I, I recognized <laughs> them as children, but I wasn't just like, oh, they're so cute. And I had at this time too. And so, um, but I loved mine, but everybody else's, I could take them or leave them, which was hilarious because my husband uh, is an educator and loves children okay. and is a big child. So it was funny because a lot of times, you know, people would think that, oh, they, they're just great with kids. And I'm like, I need a moment of silence. Yes. <laughs> I need a dark closet. You know? I feel you on that. <laughs> so that, that's funny, but it was humbling and it was amazing. And of course I love children and I just didn't know uh, how much until I was given that opportunity. Wow. Mm-hmm. So where did it go from there? You started with the children's ministry and then how did your calling progress? There was always prayer. And so, um, I think just being faithful and showing up is good. And so we were very faithful in that at that church. And there came a time when uh, the prayer pastor approached me and was like, gave me this little invitation to come to a intercessor meeting. And so then I was in this room one Tuesday evening, I think, and there were like these uh, older women and uh, leaders in the church there to pray. and. It was very humbling, but it was just like what I was made to do. And now I was getting this extensive training on intercession. I'll never forget. She said, there are so many intercessors in this church and you'll never see them and you'll never hear their name. They may not ever pray on the platform and at the altars, but they are what keeps the church uh, uh, going is intercession and those intercessors Mm. that we'll never meet. Um, and so I always, from that moment, taken the call to pray very seriously and that it's something that we just do on our own. You can, you do it with others, of course, but 
if nothing else, I know every day I'm going to be praying. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Can you explain what intercession is and what an intercessor does? Yes. Thank you so much for uh, asking me that question. I think sometimes those of us who are in church, a lot of times we use words and we just, you know, just throw them out there. The, the actual definition of intercession uh, in some dictionaries is the action of intervening on behalf of, of another and truly standing on the gap. And so the, the, one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known acts of intercession was made by um, Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of the world. And so that the, the mankind and the individuals in the world do not have to pay the penalty for their sin, which would be death and no access to God. And so Jesus Christ is the, the primary example. And I want to say that because a lot of people have heard of his story. So that was an act, the ultimate act of intercession. And so mm-hmm. when someone is an intercessor, a prayer intercessor, what happens is they intervene in, uh, uh, on behalf of others um, uh, that may not be praying. So for instance, if somebody um, is in danger and they might not even see that they're in danger, um, I would pray for them and ask God to spare their life. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. on the side of the road, I'll see an ambulance and I don't know what's going on. But I'll say, Lord, just spare their lives, God. You know, or Lord, bring help. You know, if I see an accident and no ambulance is there, Lord, send help quickly. It's really asking God to intervene on behalf of somebody I may not even know. Thank you for providing that definition. I think, you know, I've heard the words before, but I think, you know, in this conversation, it's helpful that everyone's on the same page and it's clear, you know, what what these terms mean as you are continuing to share your story with us. Okay. So it sounds like you have had a history throughout your life of being this person who intervenes on behalf of someone else's well-being. Yes. Tell me more about that. And, and I would love to connect that to where you're at now and, and what you're doing to intervene on behalf of the community that you're serving now. Yeah, so I think that um, a lot of times um, if we look back over the course of our life um, with a clear lens, you know, glasses get foggy and you have to take a a certain type of piece of uh, fabric to clean them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, our perspective has to be clean as we grow and we learn, you know, what's a healthy perspective on things. And so as I was younger, Having three brothers and no sisters, being an only girl, I had a negative perspective about that, right? Mm. <laughs> but as I got older, I realized, man, from a young age, I learned how to be by myself. I learned how to respect people who were different. Um, I learned uh, that I was um, comfortable um, being alone. Just everything that an intercessor needed to be. I learned compassion. So I think that the call to intercede and to be alone and to be set apart and to be unusual or different in a situation and to be comfortable doing that um, was just embedded in even the family I was born into. It was embedded into my life, uh, my life experience. And so I think that um, what I'm doing now, it kind of turns intercession more into advocacy. Mm. Uh, which is a, a support for mm. and a defense of uh, a person, a cause, um, um, which, which uh, where I work is a cause, a policy, you know, 
promoting something and supporting something, undergirding something. And so that uh, spiritual intercession definitely comes out uh, in, in advocacy. Yes. I can, I can definitely see that. And it's helpful for me to hear you paint that picture of how, you know, these qualities were already developing within you as a child. And then as you grew older and started to, to answer these calls, it seems that it's been more refined and then you've taken it a step further. Like you mentioned in advocating and being supportive and being someone who is standing up for those who, who need help. So we've been kind of vague so far in the conversation about the community that you are serving in this advocacy role, but would you share more about the work that you do with Traffic 911? Yes, definitely. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I want to talk about, again, how intercession played a role in me arriving at the place where I am in the organization where I serve. Um, Basically, um, I've always been thought of jobs as assignments. Um, For probably my 20s, I wouldn't say so, (laughs) but I'm 40. And so later part of my 20s and all through my 30s and now where I am and have been for the past, over the past year, um, I feel like they have been assignments and I've been called to them. It's been offered to me or my name has come up in a conversation and it's been like, this person will be great for this, you know? And so that's how I came to know about Traffic 911 is I had a friend who um, felt a call uh, when they heard about children being trafficked, a call to do something, a call to action. And I'm mm-hmm. a firm believer that once anybody hears about what is going on with youth and them being trafficked, that they'll feel some type of irritant, a call, a, a something will stir in them and they'll say, I've got to do something. And so um, I had a friend who heard about it. And I remember she met with me and another friend and she was like, uh, she was a professor for years. And she said, uh, I feel called to uh, become a lawyer and I want to legislate on behalf of children that have been trafficked. That's huge, you know, too. Yeah. And, and so I respected that. I wasn't like on the, oh, tell me more board. It was more of a, one of my friends is doing something awesome at that time. And I, I heard the information that she gave me, but it was more about her making a big life change, right? And so they moved. Right. We prayed. We were like, ah, that's amazing. The whole family moved. And so um, I love that. And I will say that, you know, your calls and your passions to me are like for your family. They're just, it overtakes you to the point where everybody you know is, is, knows about what you're called to, right? And passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so she left and then she came into town uh, back in 2014 to meet up for tea. I was like, what are you doing here? I'm interning. And then she told me about Traffic Number One. And she was interning at Traffic 911. Fast forward three years to, mm, I want to say 2017, I was, uh, had my own business and um, she was meeting with me and kind of recruiting for Voice and Choice Community Mentors for Traffic 911. And so mm-hmm. um, that's when I really got to hear all about Traffic 911 and the organization and how they were um, really uh, wanting t- uh, people in the community volunteers to help them. They're, whole thing is freeing youth from sex trafficking and understanding um, that there are youth right in your community, April, that are being trafficked. There are young people that are a part of this, that are being uh, affected by this evil. 
and you know, I want you to come and get training and learn more about it. And I was like, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did. And so that is how I got marked with this information that totally changed my life. Um, and so basically um, the organization itself, uh, we just, um, there's a problem in our society, which is the sex trafficking of children. And um, we believe that it's a symptom of relational brokenness. It's a deeply rooted issue. Um, a lot of the, the youth that we serve uh, were children that were sexually exploited. And so uh, that gives them this uh, propensity to be, um, to me, targets for traffickers. Uh, mm -hmm. And because of their brokenness, and it's like uh, they smell out um, their vulnerability and mm -hmm. so uh, a lot of times uh, trafficking victims and even traffickers and even buyers have experienced abuse or neglect in their home and their community. How can they experience abuse and neglect by their community? Schools that fail them, um, uh, churches that fail them to serve, and, and these type of uh, government-funded entities that do not make sure that the people in their community have their basic needs met. And so... Uh, this brokenness defines, uh, we believe, their reality and then sets them on a path. You know, like, um, I'm going to treat other people the way that I've been treated, um, mm. exploiting others and or being vulnerable. And so um, stop me if you want to. I'm, I'm on my... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love what you've gotten into in this this segment because there's so much to say and it's yeah. sometimes it feels like where do you even start? So I feel like this is a good starting point and you've actually brought up a term okay. that I feel is going to be crucial to the rest of our conversation that I would love for you to define. Okay. And so you mentioned relational brokenness. Yeah. Will you tell me a little bit more about what that means? Uh, yes. And so um, <sighs> there is a trust that every child I think has innately for their parents. Um, mm -hmm. And that is that you're going to provide for me. You're going to protect me. And um, I, I think that that trust is broken when uh, parents traffic their children. Our parents leave their children with unsafe people or when parents uh, do not prioritize their children and leave mm -hmm. them alone. And that's where relational brokenness starts. It starts with the neglect. So it often doesn't start with an action or uh, exploitation right away. The exploitation usually comes because of the neglect, because mm -hmm. the priority of the parent uh, or the caregiver is not the basic needs of the child, food, clothing, shelter, but also uh, love. And we, we sometimes feel like, you know, love. Uh, can sometimes be greater than food, you know, <laughs> let's be hungry together. And then when we eat, let's share. But I know that sounds crazy, but basically children need love and um, they mm -hmm. need care. They need presence. And so a relational brokenness comes when their basic needs are not met and they're not cared for. And so um, that's, that's really, we believe where the neglect starts is when their caregivers are not meeting their needs, their emotional needs, their physical needs. Um, and uh, their relational needs. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah. And you, you also mentioned that trafficking is a symptom mm -hmm. of relational yeah. brokenness. Yeah. Will you talk to me a little bit more about that 
relationship between those two factors? Yes. Um, so basically, uh, there's a vulnerability that that child experiences, and a lot of them come through being impoverished. If their family is unstable, mm-hmm. um, uh, community resources, a lack of community resources, and um, so I think that, uh, gosh, when when people see that a child is vulnerable, if they are predatory, then they attack, they go in. And so mm-hmm. that's why uh, we call it trafficking because you have youths that uh, are looking for something to eat and they're going to a friend's house and they're going there because they have snacks after school. But that friend has an older relative in the home that preys on the youth. And so mm-hmm. it could either be a, a sexual expectation of a child or it could end up being trafficking. Uh, because a lot of times what happens is uh, that child doesn't know what happened to them. They feel wrong, but they feel good getting food and being in a normal environment or even being around people. So they go back and then right. friends come over. I mean, it, things happen so quickly and organically, but basically it's when a child is vulnerable and because they don't have relationship with those who should be providing and protecting them, then they seek relationships with other people usually those who will exploit them because they know that they don't have somebody who really will care. Okay. This also brings up the question of what does trafficking mean? Because as you've been speaking, I think I had an understanding that trafficking always meant sexual exploitation, but Mm -hmm. could you, could you kind of clarify that for me and the listeners? Yeah. And so um, really, um, so there's a demand, right? Um, for, for people that want to have sex with children and youth. Um, and so the trafficker actually supplies the demand. And so um, what happens is um, it's an exchange of any item uh, for sex. And so um, honestly, I've heard of a um, high school basketball player that was trafficking the cheerleaders um, So the cheerleaders would uh, sleep with um, people that the trafficker, the basketball player, arranged so that they could get clothing. Mm. So that's trafficking because you're exploiting them, something that they want, and you're saying, I'll give this to you if you use your body, if you have sex. And so some people are exploited for food. It's especially common when youth run away. That is a sign of uh, exploitation when they're constantly running away or, or if they run away, they have about 24 to 48 hours before they find themselves having um, sex for uh, safety. So uh, they want to sleep somewhere. They don't want to sleep on the street. And somebody says, oh, I have a place where you can go with me. And they think that somebody's mm-hmm. being kind to them, but really that person is trying to exploit them. And so usually they end up doing something with them because they were so nice. And then they feel bad and then they want them to do it again or they bring over a friend. And before you know it, they've had uh, three days of being sexually exploited and trafficked because when you bring in, especially uh, multiple people now, you're saying, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody or look what you've done. I mean, it happened so fast or you're not going to eat or I'm not taking you back home. They don't know Mm -hmm. where they are. And before you know it, um, they're exchanging sex just for food, a place to stay or you know, um, 
a ride, whatever it is, a ride back to their house. Um, so um, they become a victim because they're bought and sold at that time. Sex trafficking is market driven. It's a criminal industry and it's based on the principles of supply and demand. So uh, people who purchase uh, sex increase the demand for commercial sex. And so then that provides like an incentive for traffickers uh, because then they want to maximize profits by exploiting trafficking victims. So they're always on the lookout for more people, more youth specifically. Thank you for providing that clarity. And this is such a, um, a necessary conversation that you and I are having right now. And I'm, I'm so thankful that you're here to shed light on this because I know that recently there's been an awakening of sorts as people start mm-hmm. to become more and more aware that this is happening in our midst. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll speak for myself. I tend to have the, um, the perspective that trafficking is always, you know, some strange person who's trying to, who like abducts the child and sells the child somewhere else. You know, I, I don't know. I think I've had these very elaborate and almost um, like isolated events in in mind as to how it looks. But from the way that you're describing it, it's not always presented in that case. Is that is that fair to say? I mean, that is very fair to say. And, and we have so many different um, scenarios of trafficking. And one of the most common ones is familial trafficking. Mm. Yeah, that's very common, um, especially in impoverished neighborhoods, because There'll be a relative who there's a young lady. They'll have them being trafficked to make money for the family. Or there'll be a relative who uh, exploits or uses, uh, you know, um, their um, power in the family to say, uh, I'm going to tell if you tell. And so they'll be um, uh, uh, exploiting the child. And then when it comes out, the family will say, well, we can't do anything. We have to move them to grandma's house because this, this man pays the bills. And if he goes mm. to jail, then the bills won't be paid. And we, then we'll have to take care of their family while he's in jail. And so um, it's really sad, but it happens quite a bit. Uh, and in some families, there are multiple adults, male and female involved. And when the children become of age, that's how they make money for the family. Okay. So what can we do to help and what can we do to prevent more children being exploited in this way? Uh, so join the vision. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we really believe that we could have um, communities free. So we used to say world free of relational brokenness. And we believe that, but we want to start with our communities. And we believe that first of all, we have to acknowledge that this is happening in our communities that this mm-hmm. is happening in our safest places we feel should be safe. And that's in churches, uh, that's in family uh, reunions, family families, uh, that is in schools. This is happening. And so then we need teaching on the sign. So we need the acknowledgement that this is happening. So now I need an awareness of, of how to recognize this and what is it. And I don't need to be scared of it because most of the, the youth that we serve, they live in home environments where their needs are not met. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, it's really uh, a big deal for churches and schools, and we see that now happening, that they're providing their members with basic needs. Uh, if, if they know who in my congregation, who at my school, which families do not have food, do not have food over the weekend, because that is how the basic trafficking starts. 
I'm out here trying to find food and somebody's offering to give me food in exchange for, you know, myself. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's that's one of the big things is to partner with organizations like Traffic 911. Uh, We have community trainings where we go out and we go to organizations and we talk about what we do. Um, We have um, at Traffic 911 on all social media platforms where we give information about what's going on. But knowing our model that it's about building trust-based relationships with the youth, that is why our model works differently um, Mm -hmm. because we work with other agencies, um, partners, law enforcement. We work with CPS and um, we work with um, the the children's hospitals uh, to meet them in their crisis and to walk with them throughout their journey. And unfortunately, we serve youth from the ages of nine years old to 24. And so listening to uh, this podcast is making a difference. It's stopping it. Um, (laughs) uh, Going to our website would stop it and then inviting us to uh, come and and give the information or going online to learn more about volunteering. uh, That would help stop it. You, You stop it by becoming, acknowledging it's happening, becoming aware, and then, of course, deciding on which way you're going to advocate because we need everybody to advocate, right? Yes. Okay, so the steps. <laughs> yes. Acknowledgement, awareness, and advocacy. Yeah, yeah. And let me say this because I am Black and uh, I want to say this. Um, so the definition of trafficking, like mm-hmm. legally, is so different. So um, I want to say this because uh, how I, when I went to training, let me backtrack. When I went to this training, Alyssa invited me to. I saw the training. It was amazing. It was awesome. But I didn't have the normal response of, I had the response that this is horrible. I want to make a difference. Yes, that's why I came. But what really pushed me about acknowledgement and awareness, especially in the Black community, was I went in the offices. And everybody doesn't get to go in the office. So they allowed me, I felt so special, to go in the office area. When I went into the office area, I saw a picture of a young man that I knew from college. Mm. And I was like, "Hmm." I said, I know him. Oh, well, he just got sent away. And they had him up and they were so, it was like a win because he had gotten sent away for trafficking. I said, what happened? I knew his dad. His dad was upstanding. I knew him. He was so friendly, a football player, all of that. Mm -hmm. He had gone online. He had friended a young lady. They had gotten into a relationship. He had went out of state to go and to pick her up. He had been in a relationship with her. She was a minor. After he found out that she was a minor, of course, um, I don't know all the details per se, but basically uh, the news story and the, the, um, the trial, he trafficked her. He trafficked her. And I'm saying that because he took her from out of state, went and picked her up, brought her to where he lived, to this state, and that's trafficking. Mm. So whereas we think of, oh, you know, this person's this age and they're under 18, that's a minor. And so I think sometimes we feel like age differences don't matter. That matters. Uh, Youth minds are not um, fully formed, I think, until they're 25. And so that's why we serve 9 to 24. Because that person is still developing. And so a lot of times we think, oh, they're 18, they're grown. 
And it's like, no, <laughs> we need to acknowledge that uh, the over-sexualization of the youth in our society is not okay. And there are real consequences when we do not uh, acknowledge uh, what it is to be trafficked and what it is uh, um, to traffic. And then when we're not aware of how that is happening in our families, in our churches, and in our communities. So I put that plug in there. <laughs> Yes. Thank you for sharing that. That's, I, I think it's important because oftentimes I think people will skip over that acknowledgement steps. It seems mm-hmm. so trivial, you know, it's like, of course, okay, it's happening, but not everyone is there yet. And, and it can be a hard thing to acknowledge because it's a terrible thing to yeah. acknowledge. And oh, yeah. people tend to want to stay away from thinking about terrible things that are happening in the world. But mm. at the same time, Choosing not to acknowledge it does not mean it, it does not exist. And so we have to start there. Yeah, we have cities in the Metroplex who, don't, who will say that it's not happening in their city, mm. uh, leaders in the city. So I'm, I'm all about, you know, preachers, principals, and politicians, like, get mm. involved, you know? <laughs> yes. Because you're stewarding large groups of people, large regions and areas and trafficking uh, happens. It's a lot of movement. There's a mm. lot of movement. We're going from city to city. We're going from house to house where we may, you may uh, hear a story about somebody being recovered in one city, but that youth is usually not from there. And so we've got to acknowledge that there's a transporting of youth all across the nation for these evil purposes. Okay. So moving to the next step of awareness. Yeah. How can we become aware that a trafficking situation might be happening? What are some of the signs that people should be on the lookout for? Wow, this is good. So that's a good question. Um, you want to be on the lookout for, um, and I don't, so we don't like to do the red alerts <laughs> in okay. terms of like, you know, every time you see some, a young lady with a rough looking person, you know? <laughs> right, right. We don't want to overgeneralize. Yeah. So, um, but I want to talk to the educators because during COVID there was a spike and we've gotten a lot of more intake and and calls. And it's because uh, in the schools where you have anywhere you have mandatory uh, reporting, you can acknowledge these, you can see these signs. So signs of physical abuse, uh, youth that avoid eye contact and social interaction, if they're malnourished, if they, they seem scripted in what their responses are, are they scared? of someone, um, an adult, they're on their, their, you can tell they're frightened, uh, they're lacking uh, official identification, uh, they, don't, they don't have clothing, they're wearing the same clothes and uh, the same dirt stains on their clothes day after day. And I'm saying that for schools, but um, you can notice that if, if you notice even youth in your apartment building or your neighborhood. Um, uh, if they're young and they're they're sleeping in class or they're working nights every night mm-hmm. or they're in school, but then they're not coming for a whole week or two weeks. Or when they come to school, they have very, very expensive items, but you know that their parents don't work or, or one or both of their parents can't afford that. Um, they're checking into, you see young uh, people checking into hotels or motels with older males. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe referring to them as um, a boyfriend uh, or a, a daddy, uh, which is slang, uh, tattoos and branding 
uh, on the neck, on the face. Uh, when you see a young lady with tattoos on her face, that's usually a sign, uh, especially a name or a word. That's usually a sign. Um, small children serving in a like a family restaurant. Mm. Security measures in houses or establishments of living that have like barbed wires and, you know, just really tight security. But it's not a neighborhood that you would have like tight security all over the neighborhood. Mm. And then not allowing people to speak to adults alone ever. Um, just looking like they're under police control almost. They can't talk to anybody. They can't say anything. They're afraid to speak up for themselves. So those are just some of the signs. That's a lot. <laughs> and they often go together, you know, like you'll see them. You'll see a lot of those together. So. Okay. So let's say someone spots some of these signs. Mm-hmm. What do you do from there? Oh, wow. That's a great question. And so um, one of the things that I love is just the collaboration nationally um, with this. So the National Human Trafficking, uh, there's a hotline that you can call if you feel like you see somebody that's being trafficked, it's called the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And mm-hmm. um, it's one 373 Really, um, we don't want anybody to like approach people or, you know, try to stop something from happening or ask a youth a lot of questions because uh, that can cause them to really be threatened later. Mm-hmm. are abused later violently. So, Thank you. Yeah, that's, I think it's really important to know because you might see these signs, but yeah. I think people oftentimes feel powerless to do anything. Um, so it's like, who do I go to? Who do I share this information with? How can I actually help? And so I really appreciate you sharing some of these tangible, practical ways to, to move forward with this information in, in the hopes of stopping it from happening, from preventing it from happening. Yeah. And um, so we don't have numbers for 2020, but um, over 8,000 youth um, reported uh, trafficked in um, a lot. Texas is the number two state um, for those. And that's reported so many more. Right. Texas number two. Right. And that's, it's important to make that distinction because not all cases are reported. So that's right. It's probably more than that. Okay, so I actually have a question now. When it comes to preventing cases of youth being trafficked, what are some recommendations that you have that Traffic 911 has for our communities? Uh, Talking about it again, the awareness and letting people know the signs of being trafficked, knowing where your child is at all times. Uh, They Mm -hmm. have so much, I mean, our children are so tech savvy. So they have uh, different softwares that you put on your youth's phone and you know where they are. And just let's go old school and let's say, okay, where are you going? Here's your schedule. Call me when you get there. Call me when you leave. You know, uh, right. just again, that's that relational trust uh, that we, we need to build um, with our children and uh, with their friends even. Um, you know, we have those parents who are the, uh, the neighborhood parents. and so. Our experience with uh, sex trafficking victims is just that's the thing that there's that wound, there's that neglect there. And so just being mindful of the the children that are in our care. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think, you know, I actually asked my audience if they had any questions before going into this episode. And 
that was the biggest one I received is how can we as parents, you know, commit to proactively helping our communities and, and preventing this from happening? Uh, it really happens online. And we have a, a little page we made up at the beginning of COVID. Uh, it's traffic911.com slash parents. And we talk about the vulnerability online. Like you've got to look at who your children are talking to. There are so many predators who have pictures up of them as teenagers and they are not teenagers. And you've got to talk to your children. You cannot be scared to do that. Mm -hmm. um, sharing information and uh, who are they talking to? What are they talking about? And just letting them know how they can stay safe and be cognizant of grooming um, because that people that uh, want to exploit children are very patient while they are exploiting someone else, they can be grooming and they'll have friends. Now, I know that uh, we're in a society that says, you know, um, be kind. And that is true. We should be kind, but we also have to be um, aware. And so uh, there are young people who recruit, um, who have been exploited and who recruit their friends. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you have to be aware of grooming and the friends who, again, have a lot of money, have older boyfriends, and then your child wants to hang around or older girlfriends and your child wants to hang around with them. Boys and girls, let me say that again, boys and girls are being exploited. It's not just girls. Uh, you've also got to understand pornography and sex torsion. And so your youth has a phone. And again, I know that this generation believes that young people uh, can kind of like uh, self-govern themselves, but again, they're not fully mature yet. And so mm -hmm. um, sex torsion, we got to talk about that. Yeah, you have a phone, but you shouldn't be sending anybody pictures of yourself, especially mm -hmm. naked. What happens is somebody says, send me a selfie and I'll send you one and show me this, show me that. And the next thing you know, um, they're saying, now you need to come to my house and do this. If not, I'm going to share the picture. Mm. And so um, that happens quite a bit. And so as their access to the internet and as they get these phones, um, there's a risk of exposure to pornography and also to, and, and even hackers and people that put images on child sites, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're hacking because they want to expose them because the images are, are what can uh, groom the children as well and their curiosity. So you can check in with your kids about what apps they're using, again, who they're talking to, what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And instead of setting rules like no FaceTiming and look for ways to coach them on what a healthy interaction looks like, uh, it also causes them to be leaders. So when you say, hey, this is the rule, then they can say, hey, these are the rules if you want to FaceTime with me. And our children love being leaders and they love knowing and saying, hey, so-and-so was talking about this, just having those daily conversations. So it doesn't seem like you're just being strict, but you're engaging your child in their everyday interactions with people. Uh, definitely, you want to limit screen time. They have Wi-Fi restrictions that only uh, that can shut down things after 30 minutes and 30 mm -hmm. minute increments. Um, I have one friend and this is very common. You can use screens in common areas. My children don't take their cell phones upstairs. And I tell them your cell phone is for phone use. You have a computer that you can use for searching the internet. I want to see, you know. Um, and so that's just how we are here. And that's mm -hmm. how it has to be for the protection of our children. And so um, when it's done right and it's done with conversation 
and not dictation, you usually have a more cooperative youth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for those tips. I know the parents out there are going to really appreciate that, <laughs> myself included. Yeah. So you mentioned grooming. Would you yeah. share a little bit more about what that can look like so that we as community members and as parents can be on the lookout for those signs as well? Yeah. So again, um, the grooming takes place, especially if you know that your child isn't very social and doesn't have a lot of friends. Um, there are people that look for uh, the, the, the quiet youth and uh, or if your child is posting online saying, you know, I'm so depressed or I'm so lonely or I don't have any friends or things like that. Those are outcries for attention, right? Mm-hmm. There are people who will groom them by saying, oh, what's the matter? And they'll start engaging them online like, I care about you. And every time they send them a message, they respond right away, whereas you're busy at work. The parent's busy mm-hmm. at work, right? And mm-hmm. so they're, they're constantly uh, engaging your child. And so when you start seeing your child on the phone a lot or being agitated, if they have to put up their phone or losing track of time online and they don't even see that you come into the room, uh, usually there's somebody that's grooming them and, and trying to get them to uh, connect emotionally. Because the next step, once a child has made an emotional connection is they want to please that person because they don't want them to um, take away their attention. And so then becomes the, okay, well, I see these pictures of you, but, you know, what do you look like in a swimsuit or just something silly? You know, I'm a swimmer. They'll just, they'll. They'll listen to things that they can uh, make seem innocent and say, show me this, show me that. And even grooming happens a lot of times with adults that we trust. Um, There are predators who um, prey on children by being coaches, um, by being uh, doing things in the uh, leaders uh, of organizations that are nonprofits that deal with children. Um, (laughs) You know, so we have very strict vetting process and background checks because they're bold and they take their time working in school and after school programs. Uh, There are predators that groom our children into thinking the parents thinking they're safe and the children thinking they're safe and they know my mom. And before Mm. you know it, they want to do one-on-ones with your child. Uh, They want your child to stay after practice and they are asking, Oh, I'll take them home. I know you've been working all day. Things Mm. like that. Um, Preying on single parents, single mothers, especially. Uh, I know it's hard raising a young man. You know, uh, I'll let him come with me on Saturdays. I'll we'll go cut yards. And honestly, um, it's sad, but it's true. Like uh, we don't have the luxury that we had in, in times gone by, where we can just let our children go with uh, just anyone. So, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing more about that. And that actually brings up. One of the final questions I think that I'll ask today is, okay. um, so you mentioned vetting and just being really conscientious about, in your case, the people that you would hire to work at Traffic 911. But on the flip side, how can we as community members vet organizations to better be able to determine which ones are actually doing what they say that they're doing? Because there are a lot of organizations out there that claim they want to help end uh, sex trafficking amongst youth. But how can we know that 
they're actually doing that? What, what tips do you have surrounding that? I would say to go on the website of the organization and look at their volunteer process. Hmm. A lot of times, um, I'll just have to say it like this. Um, if, if, if organizations that serve children are like, come one, come all, um, that's probably not a good organization that you just, uh, I don't want to say that, but it's true. Like you have to be super protective about the people that you bring to work with children. And so you want to look at the process. Is there a background check? Um, you know, uh, is there an interview? Uh, what are the roles that you can serve in? A lot of times initially when you're serving somewhere, it's usually going to be some uh, type of uh, support to the team or gathering materials or uh, I don't know, something that you can do behind the scenes, but not necessarily even right off the bat, just having access to the children or in this case to youth that that are um, a vulnerable population. And so you want to look for that. Uh, How easy is it to access the youth? Um, are they a priority? Is their safety a priority? I guess is <laughs> a big one. That's a really good tip. I don't think I, I've thought about that before, but I can see how, because I think on one hand, it seems like, oh, look, they want to have volunteers. They want to have more people who are out mm-hmm. there doing good. So they're accepting anybody who wants to become a volunteer. But now that you mention it, yeah, I could see how that is problematic. Yeah. And then guess what happens though? Those, most people are like, oh, of course. Like, you know, they, they understand that and they're, they're very understanding of that. And so that kind of, uh, for me, uh, says that, you know, they understand that, that we know what it takes, uh, for them to feel supported and, uh, Mm -hmm. people that want to skip again, like the awareness sessions, the conversations, uh, the trainings, you know, those are all very important. You may have, uh, we have had some people who wanted to volunteer and once they came to orientation and really heard the depth of what happened, um, that it's, it's trauma. And so uh, you're already like, (laughs) you know, signing up for, to be traumatized, right? Because it's secondary trauma. And so just understanding that uh, as you're exposed to trauma, you're being traumatized and you have to be in a healthy place for that. We say free people, free people at Traffic Number One and healed people, heal people. And so we're very diligent about stewarding our healing as we walk with others on the journey uh, to receive theirs. And so um, we're very humble and open about that. And so when people come to us and, you know, with with the uh, a S on their chest and, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, it's no problem. It's no- and, and, and that's, a, that's a big red flag because it's like you really don't understand. So either you're going to come in with a, with a, you know, you can get over this, you know, and put, not being trauma-informed and, and trying to change the experience that the youth had or wash it away and not help them process it. Um, because some people sometimes do want to take a big eraser, right, and just erase all the ugly. And it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't. No, not at all. Okay, so last question, because I don't think we've covered this, even though we've been talking about Traffic 911 a lot so far. What is your role with the company? Oh, and how can people stay in touch with your work? <laughs> oh, yeah, I do have a role. Okay, so um, I am the Voice and Choice Community Program Coordinator. And so what I do is, um, so let me tell you, about, just real quick, let me tell you real briefly yes. uh, how we operate. And so... Uh, we work with youth that are being recovered. 
um, um, from a sex trafficking situation. And so what happens is and at the point of crisis, one of our voice and choice advocates is called out to either the police station uh, the hosp- or the hospital and they have 60 seconds to arrive. And so from that time, if they continue to receive services from us, they have an advocate assigned to them that walks with them through the stages of change, helping them through the healing process and prayerfully uh, um, walking them through making the decision to get out of the life if they are still in the life. Some uh, youth that have been trafficked, it's a one-time thing or a, uh, a period of time, but it's a one trafficker, okay? And mm-hmm. so then once they're stable, then they come over to the Voice and Choice Mentor Program, which is which I'm the program coordinator, and that is where we have uh, community members who have acknowledged and become aware and have decided to advocate as mentors in the different communities in the Metroplex and walk alongside the youth in their journey towards healing. And so that's once they have been stabilized and they are ready to move forward. And so uh, I coordinate that program. Excellent. I'm so thankful for you, April. I, I really am. Awesome. I am thankful for the opportunity to share about um, something that I'm so passionate about and called to. I'm very grateful. Yay. So where can people stay in touch with you and your work and the work that Traffic 911 is doing? Um, so my email is april at traffic911.com. And you can email me with other questions or if you'd like more information or about our volunteer opportunities and the work that Traffic 911 on follow us on Instagram, um, LinkedIn, Facebook uh, at Traffic 911 and also our website, which is awesome and amazing. Our media and administrative coordinator is Rachel Peoples and she gives all of the information on what is going on um, in our fight to free youth from sex trafficking, traffic911.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, April. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And that's it for this episode of Young Honest Mother, the podcast, which means it's time for you to join the conversation. Share your thoughts on social media and tag me at Young Honest Mother. And then pass this episode along to friends and family who need to know that they're not alone on this journey either. Until next time, I'm your host, Maurice Young.